Hello, welcome to the Latitude Book Shambles specials. I'm afraid to say there's no Josie Long in the field this year. Just a warning that there will be some background noise. All of these were recorded in different corners of a Suffolk field. Sometimes on stage we had Mavis Staples in the background, which was wonderful, by the way, uh, or public service broadcasting, or many other bands, or occasionally merely noisy poets talking. So you will hear some background noise, and that is just obviously part of the festival atmosphere. So welcome to the Latitude Book Shambles specials. Uh, John and Eri, you've done. We did the first ever uh, latitude. Did we really? Because they're I saying it's, it's been going one. for fifteen years, but that was yeah, nice. it's eleven years. Two thousand and six, we were here, weren't we? Yeah, that was the first one. Uh, quiet, wasn't it? You are, as well as being uh, a great performer and actor, you also uh, love books. Yes. And you find Eastbourne, which of course has perhaps one of the greatest second-hand bookshops. That's right, Camillus. It's four floors. I, just, I think it's four floors. I've only ever been on two of them. But um, remember, I'll never forget when you came to my house and saw my bookshelves. I've looked at my books in a different way because I've got a massive collection of books about style through the decades, as you saw. And you pointed out that they're actually self-help, and I didn't know. It's only recently I've begun to view them in a different way, and I might have to get rid of them. That was the Lighthouse books, wasn't it? Was it Lighthouse series? Oh, I don't know what that is. It's more books like How to Be Charming and How to Be a Girl and stuff from the 1950s. And um, There's one really good book where you have a programme of beauty routines, and the last page you end up having a baby. It's nice, isn't it? You go on a date, and the next day you have a baby. Because you got me a lovely book about the story of coal once. That's right. Uh, and there was one of my favourites was, uh, there's, there's one, uh, what's it called? Something like difficult uh, um, questions, good answers, oh, one of those yes, ones. Yes, I'm one trying those. to remember. Oh, yes. uh, if there's one about someone falling in love with a working class girl, I'm not quite certain That's what right. to do. That's right, yes, what should I do if I fall in love with, yeah, yes. with an Eventually, underling? the way that she speaks will be so awful, <laughs> and it will grate upon your friends. <laughs> I, I love those books because they, those books about how to be... I kind of had them when I was very, very young, and I've, I always thought, you know, if you just had this and you just had that, everything would be all right. And that's, of course, what a lot of those self-help books are, isn't it? Just that one little thing, if you just adjust that, everything will fall into place. I'm a bit like that about style. At the moment, I'm obsessed with uh, France and Russia, and I'm learning French and Russian, so a lot of my books now that I've got are French and Russian. How much do you get from, what, I mean, from your books, in terms of you created many characters... And how much do you, do you feel, ah, this, you know, by, by delving into the 1930s, into the 1950s, going to these wonderful, musty I don't. I think you might get this too, right? But if I really love something, I can't laugh at it. And I go to those books and I go, let's have a little laugh at the 1930s, what a woman was meant to be like. And I just end up reading them and loving them. I can't directly take the mickey out of them. And I think a lot of my comedy comes from a very warm place. As you know, like, I, obviously, I love Brief Encounter, which is Celia Johnson. I don't really use my books for inspiration like that. I just love them. I'm, I get more inspired by art galleries at the moment. That's where I get my oh, comedy from. Oh, do you? Well, that's the, well, we've been talking about that, haven't we? Doing the uh, trying to do some some more stuff at art galleries. Okay. How do you? I was talking to Jeff Dyer about this earlier. Um, the process when you go around an art gallery. Cause we went round. What, what was the lovely one in Eastbourne? And the Towner. Had, that's a good exhibition. Oh, a good what's gallery. the name of that great uh, painter? Revilius. The Eastbourne yeah, painter. There's loads. Yeah, there's one on and the he's moment. now incredibly back in fashion as well, isn't he, Eric Revilius? He is very much in fashion. What's interesting about the exhibition on at the moment at the Towner? It's on until the middle of September. So anyone who wants to come down to Eastbourne has got ages to see it. It's called Revilius and Co. And it's all about the other artists as well that are around him. And a lot of them were women, and a lot of them have been overlooked, and a lot of them are amazing. And my friend actually thinks that Revilius is the weak link in that exhibition and that his partner, Tyza Garwood, was much superior with her woodcuts. So you should come and have a little look and we'll have a little look round and do a critique. It's very interesting. And the other day I met my friend's mum went to the Royal College of Art in the 1930s or 40s and her teachers were John Piper, Paul Nash and Edward Vorden. <laughs> That's pretty exciting. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to find out if I can see her sketchbooks and see if she's got any little notes from those people. So how do you find in terms of if you're going to do... Uh, performance in in a space which is not immediately thought of as a performance space is there a different approach that you have to take well, do you remember those laughter in odd places gigs we used to do? I remember well, there was one in a laundrette. I did one in an Oxfam bookshop once. And it's really nice having a little narrowing of, of what you can do, a little kind of project, isn't it? And I remember doing a lot of stuff about being in a charity shop and loads of anecdotes about charity shops when I was in the Oxfam one. I think it would be nice to have um, that little steer of being in an art gallery and finding what comedy you can find in that. I was going to do a show about sculpture um, for children called Plinth Charming. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and that's as far as I've got. <laughs> But starting from a pun is always, I think, it's, <laughs> it's a start. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the um, 
Uh, what what do you uh, what what are you reading now? Who is it? Are you, are you still drawn predominantly to the past? I'm reading. I am reading books from the past at the moment. I've tried to read a lot of modern books, and I just get really angry. I bought that Cormac McCarthy one, The Road. I read about three words, and I thought I can't read this. I, I, I know it's bad to read books from the past to a degree, but they have been tried and tested. It's not bad. They're not going to waste my time. It's a weird thing, no, isn't it? It's like sometimes you always feel everything must be new. It's like with music, oh, what are the latest bands? And then you suddenly find out that there's, you know, all of these bizarre and strange, you know, bits of prog, whatever it might be, that you never knew about. Yeah, that's true. I was saying earlier, I discovered Plastic Letters for the first time three years ago. I love Blondie. I got a new album I didn't know about. But um, but yeah, I, I think uh, at the moment I'm reading um, Tilly Olson, which is a working class American writer. It was one of the first women to write about working class, apparently, or one of the first that other people knew about. I'm not sure. And I've been reading a lot of Persephone books, you know, the books that are um, women writers that went out of print. Mm. And there's some really grilly ones. And you'd really like Mar- Mar- Marganita Lasky wrote a book called The Victorian Chaise Long about haunted Chaise Long, and it's a horror story. And it's so good. I'll, I'll pass it that on to you. Haunted Chaise Long yes, sounds like It's this. really good, yeah. There's a great book, <laughs> a totally different, The Haunted Moustache, which is actually. A oh, I know Dave Brammer very well. He's my friend, yeah, I saw him earlier. Yeah, it's very good. You saw that, did you? No, I haven't seen it. I've only got the book. Oh, very good. And yes. I, f- I think, yeah, it's kind of... Int- what are you reading at the moment? Because when you came round, you were surprised I had so much fiction. Are you, have you got into fiction now? I try fiction. I've, I've read Camp Concentration recently by Thomas M. Dish, which is mm. kind of very... But I, I'm going to make myself... I'm always trying to work on something. Mm-hmm. So it's like, because I'm doing a, book, a, a show about art, and then I was writing, before that I was writing a thing about mental health and comedians. So I'm, it's never a chore, mm. but it means I have to go, now I must read all of these books by psychotherapy. And now I'm just reading about someone who I was bang up on about on Bookshammers, but Robert Rauschenberg. Oh, yeah. And then I'm so trying lovely. also to understand, I've been reading loads of books about and things about Stanley Spencer. Oh, lovely. I've been reading I, the Peggy Angus book. She's one of the Revillious crew that was a bit overlooked. She was um, a, a potato printer. <laughs> she, did, she, did, she did potato printed um, teaching with children at, at the Camden School for Girls as well as being an artist. And I've got a lot in common with her. And she um, got a, a merit for her teaching certificate she burst into tears because she thought she'd have to be a teacher and that her art would suffer so she vowed only ever to teach part-time and that's a little bit like me Robin what do you because <laughs> you're doing an Edinburgh show yes I'm doing a children's show this year to try it out I thought I'd try some new challenges this year so I'm doing the Topsy Turvy Hotel with Jodie Kamali so we've been devising that and working with a really good director Mick Barnfather which is exciting to do something new you know but and I was thinking the other day what a dream come true it would be to end up doing performance art in a gallery that's funny that would be my heaven and you know when I started doing comedy I was doing theatre and no one was coming so I moved my entrance in the brochure to comedy and then people started coming and now it's so huge it's much huger than it was when I started it and I'm in Brighton you know um and so I was thinking maybe I should move it again now move it over to dance and do the same stuff I've been doing for 10 years call it something else yeah I'm kind of annoyed <laughs> I was telling someone the other day because the, the art show I'm doing in Edinburgh was meant to be in spoken word and now it's been put in the comedy section oh. deliberately I think by my agent yeah, by and someone hoping now, that people will come and see it, Robin. Yeah, <laughs> whereas I wanted it to be art, proper art. Last no one so, comes to see it. Would you ever do a show at Summerhall? Yeah, yeah I love Summerhall. Wouldn't it yeah, be yeah. amazing, wouldn't it, to do comedy there, but be arty about it? I'd, lo- I'd love to do... But, you know, I'm not being more frivolous. I'm not saying let's get more money by doing something there. I would <laughs> actually love to do something with real heart, which is expressing what I want to say, but to an art audience, I think that would be... And it's a fine line, isn't it, moving from comedy and to art and how you would express that, but I think it would be really interesting. I think that bit, I went around the Giacometti uh, exhibition at the table, and it's just brilliant. And it is, a lot of it's funny. There's one which is, what's it called? Not pointy stick, I can't remember. <laughs> and it's literally, and it's this kind of little baby with a little, well, not a baby, just a small skull and a little kind of three ribbed rib cage, yeah. and this big pointy horn. Mm-hmm. And then there's a kind of sluice. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at it, I said to my friend, I said, I think the idea of that is that, that the pointy horn goes in and then the eyes fall out and then they roll down and then there's two little receptacles. <laughs> All of those things that are like little board games. Yeah, that like a Looney Tunes uh, sequence. Yeah. That's really lovely. Hmm, yeah. I, I forgot. The Robert Rauschenberg thing, that, bo- that pool of bubbling mud, it wasn't it joyful? But it's like the new series of David Lynch, uh, Twin Peaks, David Lynch. It's got real punchlines and callbacks and hilarious bits where we have to pause it because we're laughing so much. It, and I think that 
you know, it's surprising when there's comedy in, in art sometimes. Yeah. But the, the, one of the Miro ones that really makes me laugh in the Tate Modern is um, a picture and it says, Miro doesn't know whether this is a whale or an ink blot. Or so. It's just really kind of obtuse and playful and yeah, lovely. It's you should go to there. D- I can't wait to see your shop. comedy show. Is, uh, which is the mobile bookshop which is here at Latitude they've got a, a book of I can't remember the name of the surrealist artist we'll dub it in later mm-hmm. but uh, Jeff who runs it said I've got to get rid of this book now he said because I, it, it's a really bizarre sexually bizarre book and he's decided Ooh. that he needs it perhaps has to have it out of the house uh, just in case the grandkids come round so it's acceptable 20 years ago but not now well it's, it's kind of weird far. but it's like it's not because it's dirty mm-hmm. or anything like that there's just something where you go, that's, the imagery is too weird and too difficult to explain to the young. <laughs> is it in the children's section? No. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not quite under the counter. He's very near the counter, so he could suddenly reach out if the wrong person was going towards it. <laughs> we better stop because we've got to do oh, a show thank now. thank you for talking to me. I enjoyed that. Thank you. Our next guest is someone who appeared on Book Shambles last year. It is author Jeff Dyer. Um, Jeff, let's first of all quickly talk about um, White Sands, just because we talked about this before mm. on Book Shambles, but we probably didn't talk about it very much because I think we went off on various other. We got uh, sucked back Lawrence into the First World War and, uh, and yeah. stuff, didn't we? Yeah. Well, that was, yeah, my dad loves that book so much. Um, so, White Sands, why, what was the. Well, I'm interested in each time, if you can ever pinpoint. The, the start, the moment that a book starts, because so many of your books mm. seem to have the element, the process is within it, it's not merely right, everything about the, the, the germination of, of the idea, so for White Sands what was that? Yeah, well White Sands is uh, an unusual th- well, it's, it, it's different to some of the books in that it's uh, a sort of collection of travel pieces, and what happened is that I'd published that book uh, yoga for people who can't be bothered to do it in uh, whenever it was i don't know 2004 something like that and then i realized that over the over time i'd amassed a certain number of uh, other pieces which actually i would call not so much travel pieces as pieces about places that i'd been to it's actually not so much traveling in them but it's about getting to a place and I thought, yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's nearly enough for a book here. And then when I looked, so there's that, there was just that thing of accumulation. But then I saw there were certain underlying uh, concerns in all of these pieces. And uh, once I recognized that, then I wrote a couple of other new ones about Los Angeles, where I now live, uh, which uh, sort of fitted in with uh, the sort of ongoing thematic concerns. So to answer your question... That book didn't have a germination so much as a thing as as a sort of accum- the the core of it became evident through a process of accumulation. I think. In in your writing, I get uh, a sense of I suppose hyper vigilance. That bit where you are constant. I mean, I find this generally, and it's kind of been useful in stand up. I suppose, if not particularly useful in attempting to uh, tackle reality, which is a constant sense of watching yourself within the situation. Mm. And and I think in quite a lot of your writing, there is you. You seem to be, you. You are. It's not merely inside your mind. You're also outside and going. Now this is happening, and I am doing this, and I'm. And so that that layering of the vid- is that something that you you would say is true. Yeah, I think that's a good observation, actually. Yeah, there's that kind of uh, consciousness of uh, the experience and often a consciousness of the experience not living up to its billing. So certainly what I've never been able to do is to fake it. You know, I've not been able to go to some place which has a great reputation and make out that, yeah, I'm having some sort of wonderful eye-opening experience when I'm not. So then I feel it's better it's more revelatory i think to uh, acknowledge the gap between uh, the billing and my actual experience about it and then of course you immediately get into that thing of is it the fault of the place or is it or is it my failing the crucial thing i think is that you have some sort of dialogue some sort of interrogation going on between the uh, you know the protagonist me and and the place so is that what we're thinking of uh writing about Tahiti for instance where you go you are immediately approaching a place which has been mythologized yeah and so already even the the, the, the Gauguin paintings that, that existed were were really fakes of 
what was going on there. So you've got yeah. so many different layers of expectation. Yeah, that's right. It was crazy for me to go because I went to Tahiti not wanting to see Tahiti. I wanted to step inside a Gauguin painting. And for exactly the reason that you've set out, that was impossible to do because there was I in... I wasn't in a Gauguin painting. I was in Tahiti. <laughs> Is that, I suppose that's a lot of... Uh, the, the you build up your expectation are you then aware thinking has it almost become part of the process where you, where you go oh now I've realised how much I've built up the expectation of this place there's probably going to be something within this because undoubtedly my hopes will be dashed yeah except sometimes once I mean I would hate to become one of those sort of British writers uh, of which there's a tradition of satirising the world of going round the world in an Evelyn Warish like way just looking for the chance to sort of or, you know, to, to deride it. Because there's plenty of the places in the world that have a stupendous reputation and they live up to that. So, for example, I always think of this, you know, the Grand Canyon has a considerable reputation. Nobody ever comes back from the Grand Canyon or from any American national park saying, that was, it's overrated, that place, isn't <laughs> it? You know, it has a reputation for stupendousness, which it exceeds, you know. it's The, the Grand Canyon is so vast and great that it, your brain actually can't even process uh, the scale of it, the magnificence of it. So it's really important to me that I remember that, yeah, I like, you know, I, you know, I like messing around and, you know, joking, all this kind of stuff. But it's really, you know, it's important that that sense of, God, I've just been listening to a Van Morrison uh, 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 tune playing somewhere. It's really important that that sense of wonder is, is not corroded, if you like. That's it, the Grand Canyon, because I found that difficult. I'd spent two, I went to five canyons beforehand. And, uh, and, and I think it's because it's so mythologized. I do remember the moment of first seeing it, and you go, that awe is, there, there is, it does. But then, because it's so vast, you require a plane going over it to <laughs> yeah. go, bloody hell, I've just realized how big this is. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, you just can't process uh, the, the, you know, how, how big it is. But you're right. I mean, uh, it sounds like you, you got canyoned out just like I got I got templed out when I was in at Angkor Wat you know which is you know has a reputation as one of the wonders of the world which it fully deserves but oh my god you know uh, after a certain while you're just sated with this stupendousness I want to briefly move on to something else which is your first book which we talked about for a very short amount of time uh, was about John Berger which I know you don't yeah. you basically see it's kind of your PhD or yeah. the thesis work but what was because John Berger has, has uh, you know died only very recently and I've, I've been going back to you know the collections about looking what do you think it was it, or, or, or are you able to uh, explain what he brought to our way of approaching art because looking back at the ways of seeing series it still, to me, is very affecting. Yeah. No, it's a, and also, yeah, the TV series, it's such a great bit of television uh, as well as everything else. Well, I think it's quite a simple way, thing, actually. He really, uh, there's a nice phrase of Rilke's, which I'm always quoting from his letters on Cezanne, when he talked about standing in front of paintings more seeingly. Uh, and that's what Berger did, you know, so to, you know, use the old cliche I mean they, they were they, he opened our eyes and for me he opened my eyes to the fact that these boring old paintings of men in roughs could be you know interesting actually you know they're just boring brown old varnished paintings and he made the whole history of art seem uh, interesting and crucially he did it not within that discourse that was so popular when, you know, in the 1980s uh, but in a way that was uh, absolutely not academic, but very rigorous, uh, in a way that combined creative writing with commentary. It was critical writing, but it was also imaginative writing. So, I mean, yeah, he uh, there's what he enabled us to see in the art, but also, more importantly for me, was the way that he made available a way a way of writing about subjects that you uh, you know that you're interested in, let's say. There's a, what, I'm going to say an awful phrase, gallery etiquette. But when you are going around a gallery, because it's only recently I've, I've become, I spent so much time in galleries because I was on tour and I go to the local gallery. Mm. And it's, I've now, I no longer have fear of looking at a painting for too long. 
Because oh, I always yeah. used to have that fear of the judgment of the attendant, <laughs> thinking, you know, are you looking at it for too long? I always only looked at the Rothko for 37 seconds, the man's an idiot. And now I just have these moments of down in Margate at the Turner Contemporary, and it was an incredible Turner exhibition. I'd never seen Whoa. so many of the... In- the light paintings, paintings which yeah. would almost entirely light or Margate sounds. And I just spent half an hour in front of one, and I wonder if yeah. you find there are ways where you just go, or what, what your approach is when you're going around an exhibition? Uh, typically, I hurry around to get a, to, to get a look at, at everything. I mean, recently I was in... Uh, I've, got this, I've never done this before. I flew up from Los Angeles to San Francisco for the day to see an art exhibition because it was the only chance to see it and it was uh, Matisse and Diebenkorn absolutely stupendous and I'd seen the Matisse Picasso show of course these two giant heavyweights you know Foreman and Ali as it were and Diebenkorn can really hold his own uh, in the company of Matisse and it was one of these it was a sort of thesis show to, sh- to demonstrate how much you know Diebenkorn learned from Matisse and it was just so fantastically convincing. And, you know, there were, I, you know, I quickly went through it, got an overview. And then there were a couple of them, of uh, the Diebenkorns in particular, where, yeah, I lingered in, in front of them. Um, so, uh, the, but, to go, but I'd really like to go back to you and Turner because, yeah, I absolutely, I mean, that last Turner show I saw, it was, what was it called? Painting Set Free, the late Turner you know, which I found incredibly moving and that you can just stare at those sort of late paintings, you know, some of them unfinished for ages. And I always think of that great Berger essay, which I'm sure you remember, Turner and the Barbershop. You know, he says, you know, imagine Turner as a young boy growing up in his dad's barbershop. And he says, you know, just think about what he'd have seen there as a young boy. You know, the steam on the mirrors, the flecks of foam, or the sort of brisk, the, the whiskers in the in the basin, all this kind of stuff, the water, all the, the flecks of blood from shaving. He says, and then, you know, think of those paintings of late Turner with that sort of scree of stuff. And the wonderful thing about that is it's not, he's not trying to make some academic case whereby he says, yes, you know, this, this proves that as a result of seeing... See, you know, um, he, it's just a suggestion to you. And, of course, you read that passage. And as you read it, you can visualise those late turners. But, my God, you want to get on your bike straight away and go down to Tate Britain and, and see them. And that's what, he's all, what the writing has always done to make you, you know, have the experience that he's evoked so brilliantly. Next, Robin spoke with writer, actor, comedian, performer, yes, and a broadcaster. This is Katie Brand. Katie Brand, uh, you first of all, I tell you what, let's talk about your book. Uh, your first book, Brenda Monkey's Funny yes. uh, novel, uh, which is set in the world of uh, stand up comedy it and is. its ghastly narcissism and the Edinburgh Festival. Yes. Uh, you used to work as a stand-up. Did that help writing it? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I um, I wasn't actually doing stand-up when I wrote it. I wasn't doing much performing at all. Uh, and I was in a sort of phase where I didn't really want to be on stage that much and I was really into writing. Um, and actually, weirdly, writing about stand-up made me think of going back into it. Uh, and then I did a book tour uh, about the, uh, for the book and that was the first time I'd really done a lot of things on stage as myself. So that was a couple of years ago. So out of that there is a direct line to what I'm doing now have you had people I mean it's always going to be presumed when you do a bit like that that people will either say uh, I think I've worked that out or mm. is that me <laughs> yeah. has has anyone had the uh, grotesque level of egotism to actually say I believe that character is me not yet although apparently there are some discussions on forums or fora should I say and uh there are sort of comedy websites who, a couple of them reviewed it and said, oh, part of the fun of this is trying to guess who's who. But to be honest, there's not a lot of direct lifts. A lot, most people are mishmashes of three or four different stand-ups or not everything. It's not very autobiographical, actually. There are bits that I've experienced, but I think people assume there's a higher level of autobiography than there is. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, there aren't, most people assume that I am Brenda, and that I'm writing just like a kind of a year of my life, mm. sort of verbatim from memory, which isn't the case at all. And you're doing a follow-up? Yes, Brenda Monk is famous. Uh, it's with the same crowdfunding uh, publisher called Unbound, yep. who were quite new when I first did Brenda Monk is Funny, uh, and now they're just they're almost like an established publisher. They're doing incredibly well. 
um, and got some really eminent uh, authors on their books and they've got a, they were long listed for the Booker Prize and all sorts. So yeah, Brenda Bunk is famous. I'm going to start working on in the autumn and start pushing the crowdfunding side of it. But what I'd really like is to write her whole life over right. maybe four or five books. So it'd be Brenda Bunk is funny, Brenda Bunk is famous, uh, Brenda Bunk is forgotten, Brenda Bunk is fucked. And then something, Brenda Monk is something that means a return to form but that begins with an F. So I'm willing to take suggestions. That's almost like there's a lovely bit in... Uh, have you ever read Alexi Sale's uh, Jeffrey the Tube Training, The Fat Comedian? No. It's a wonderful bit of work. So Alexi Sale and, and the artist Oscar Zarati also did things like Small Killing with Alan Moore and has done some great books on Freud. Mm. And uh, it's this great... It's Alexi, I think, really... This was the late 80s. And having talked to him since... It's interesting that his own perspective of kind of like where he felt that perhaps he wasn't as lauded and maybe he'd missed the boat, even though he mm-hmm. was a spectator, I used to think Alexis Sale was one of your biggest names. Yeah. And it has that whole thing about, you know, who's Alexis Sale? Mm-hmm. Uh, get me Alexis Sale. Get me someone like Alexis Sale. <laughs> yeah. Who's Alexis Sale? Yes, yes. The, the cycle of fame. Did you learn anything about stand-up or why you did it through the process of creating fictional stand-ups? Um, I think I learned. I think I became more. I, I softened to the psychology of stand-up. I think a bit more, um, because you know I've done character comedy a lot and sketch comedy and live comedy a lot, and I've been around that whole world. But the sketch comedy world is a bit softer. It's a bit more collaborative. Um, the main difference, I don't know if it's still the case, but the main difference back when I was doing lots of live sketches is that you couldn't get paid for it live. So you couldn't earn a living doing live sketches. Uh, whereas the stand-ups, it was their profession and they could make a decent living doing it. And so there was a slightly more brutal layer to the stand-up, I think. And I uh, I did go out with a stand-up comedian for, for a few years, sort of on and off. Uh, but it meant that I had... I was in green rooms a lot and I was surrounded by stand-ups a lot as a stand-ups partner, uh, which can be quite a different experience of being in the green room with all the kind of banter, especially if it, uh, back then you've very frequently got all-male lineups, um, which is much less the case now. So the vibe in the green room was quite full-on often, especially if people were feeling a bit pumped and feeling quite competitive and getting themselves psyched up to go on stage. And whilst I found that quite funny and entertaining a lot of the time, it could also get quite unpleasant and wearing... Uh, and I was quite intolerant of that, I think, from a psychological point of view at that time. Uh, whereas I think through writing the books, I'm still fascinated by the psychology of it and I still love the company of stand-up comedians and um, all that stuff. I think exploring the individual psychologies of all the characters and Brenda, obviously, who I wanted to make psychologically a stand-up, uh, it, which is quite distinct from me somehow from a psychological point of view, um, did make me more sort of sympathetic somehow. Uh, and I think, in a way, again, that played back into making the whole idea of doing it myself more appealing. See, I don't know what you think about this, but I, I started to believe that though comedians are as much written about the madness of the stand-up, mm. actually is almost one of the most sane mm. of, of the arts. Well, I said that to Phil Jupes the other day. He was like, oh, no. And I, th- <laughs> I think, you know, well, Joe Brand says a thing, which is, is she, says that she doesn't think that comedians are necessarily mentally ill, but she does think that most of the comedians she knows are damaged people. But I wonder if that's merely a reflection of the fact that it turns out nearly everyone's damaged if you I agree. To... And actually, I think I, I definitely agree that, that people, uh, stand-ups, a good stand-up when they're on stage, uh, sort of speaking their truth, uh, as it were, is the mo- one of the most sane, honest, rational experiences you can have of another human being. Mm. I definitely think that. I think the lifestyle damages people. I think it's really unfortunate that there is this sort of lonely, the sort of mixture of luxury and loneliness, as a friend of mine put it, that I think can make people a bit crazy, you know. I mean, it is it is an odd thing to do, to want to walk into a room full of people and be the only one facing the wrong way. And that kind of constant adrenaline... You know, someone once said to me, I don't know if it's true, but I've remembered it, that doing like an hour of stand-up on your own, your body reacts from an adrenaline point of view roughly the same as being in a medium-sized car crash. And I think that amount of adrenaline night after night after night, I'm not sure if your body is built to withstand that or your psyche. And then if you're on your own night after night after night in new places, all that kind of thing, I do, I do think that can have quite a big effect on people's psychology. I think Noel Fielding told me that he became quite ill when they were doing the huge bouche tour because you get so excited about the whole thing yeah. you, can, you know as Julian can be quite kind of relaxed 
relaxed and just just go and have a curry and watch yeah. the Exodus. Whereas Narotha, you know, and he's just yeah. like, um, and uh, yeah, I think that is a because Sarah Pascoe sometimes I think it was Sarah who said a thing about sometimes people go, oh yeah, comedians are off stage, so they find it very hard to socialise. And she said it's because it's not about them, mm. uh, and maybe it's just because they're so egotistical. Whereas I think it's about control. I mm. think it's the fact that stand up, whether you fail or succeed you at least have gone, this is the scenario I start with and I'm going to try and control the perception of me. Mm-hmm. I think, lots of people I think a lot of, I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but I think a lot of stand-ups are introverts. And I mean, Sophie Hagen has done a lot of mm. stuff about this and I did a podcast with her about this. And um, I, you know, everyone throughout my life has assumed that I'm an extrovert, including me. Uh, and, and yet I do have this kind of overwhelming feeling at parties that I just want to leave abruptly or I do need lots of time to myself or I have to kind of almost plan big social interactions and I can be really you know I can really enjoy social stuff but the need to be on my own quite a lot and be quiet on my own uh, is definitely has always been there and I think that introvertedness and Sophie and I were talking about this is that you can when you do stand up it's so it's sort of crazy if you feel that you're an introvert in some way because what you're actually doing because people say how well then how can you possibly go on stage uh, for an hour by yourself no introvert would ever do that but actually it's you want the social contact but as you say you want it perfectly controlled in your arena where you set the parameters and it's almost like some days I think a lot of people when they're touring or doing a live show every night for a period of time have to be on their own a lot during the day Uh, and I think that's partly because you um, almost parcel the precise amount of energy you're going to need to push out this extrovert version of you on stage for an hour and actually that takes up quite a lot of your energy so the rest of the time you don't have that much for kind of just fun chats and I definitely think that can play into this sort of idea of the grumpy clown you know the person that doesn't want to interact who's very bad tempered all the time and then suddenly is the life and soul as soon as they walk out on stage but I think it's to do with being introverted. Did you um, read? I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if everyone's near. I, it's really hard to work out, isn't it? Because I think there's also mm. that, that fear that if you do decide that there's something that appears to be slightly idiosyncratic, then it's almost as if you are self-aggrandizing. Yeah. Because you know? I think there are those who would very much like to say, "I'm not as others." What mm. I see, the darkness in my soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it can get quite pompous. Yeah, it can get pompous. I mean, that was why... part of the thing when I was back when I was sort of the girlfriend, even though I was doing live comedy myself, I was still always the girlfriend. And that kind of idea of a load of guys sitting down talking to each other about stand-up being like jazz and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it did get a little bit pompous. They mainly mean you have to wear boaters if you do it on a Sunday. <laughs> I think that's all it is. Um, I thought it just meant kind of you could cover it up if it went really wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is... what Did you read anything around the, the book? Uh, uh, like in terms of other novels that were looking at worlds of... Uh, whether it's introverts or whether it was... Shows, or you, it was just... There was a fear because sometimes it's worrying to do that, isn't it? Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't read other books about stand-up particularly. I think the kind of inspiration, and this is a sort of madly kind of highfalutin inspiration. This isn't. I'm not drawing a parallel or a comparison, but I think the thing I had in my mind a lot was the Nathan Zuckerman books, the Philip Roth books, and I knew people would think it was all me and that everything that happened to Brenda happened to me, um, and the kind of sending that up slightly or being mischievous with it or not being not being intimidated or bogged down by that um i definitely took a lot of inspiration from all the nathan zuckerman books and the way that philip roth has made an alter ego for himself where he can send up and laugh at things that he's experienced in his life as an author uh, but also put in other things if he feels like it and have this alter ego sort of go off and do other things and experience other things or come back and do you know the the Portnoy's complaint sort of parallel with Nathan Zuckerman is he's literally written a book a first book that's a scandalous book about sex that has kind of you know disgraced himself within the community but made him a lot of money and very famous I mean that is obviously Philip Roth's experience of Portnoy's complaint but he's writing about that through Nathan Zuckerman and his parallel book uh, and I just I find I just I, I love all that and I think it's very clever and fun uh, and that was mainly what I had in my head I think Comedian John Luke Roberts joined us as part of the Festival Shambles live show, and the day after, he caught up with Robin. The, uh, the it's like that great moment in uh, Man Bites Dog. Have you ever seen Man Bites Dog? No, I haven't. It's a, uh, a this documentary crew following a, a serial killer, and there's a great scene where basically 
the sound crew are killed, uh, but the um, the film crew are still running away. So you have <laughs> a mix of sound crew trapped and dying, and then uh, anyway. So John Luke Roberts, uh, you you. Uh, I want to ask you about the, your change in comedy because I think your style has changed an enormous amount. Yes. Uh, in the last three years, is it? Yeah, well, I guess so. Yes. You uh, you all, always very interesting, but there was a kind of a, a, dry, a drier. Uh, yeah, I was gag a sort of dry person. one-liner comic, and then I sort of stopped liking jokes so much, or realised that when something's really funny, the jokes matter very little. But you can still write really good jokes and then pepper them over something which is funny in the first place. Yeah. Rather than just trying to convince an audience with a slightly aloof persona to <laughs> Well, you're, to heckle, find you you're, you're putting down the whole audience. Yeah, the insult thing. always a, a, a huge treat. At it was actually, it was always fun here. But then I realised a lot, like, oh, I was doing that in my early to mid-twenties. There was something a bit arch... It, it, um, You'd certainly get men of a certain age in groups getting genuinely offended by these, like, like honest. The whole point of them was that they weren't meant to be offensive. They were. I read them off cards so the audience would know that it was just in order where they happened to be that they were insulted with a certain thing, and they were just one-liners hidden as insults. But there, a certain type of beta male would get really aggrieved by it, uh, and and were they the ones who sent you to clown school? Um, they. Um, well, no, that were my, those were my father issues, I think, <laughs> which got me over there. Well, you did, you did a whole show about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so was that a transitional point then? Clown, of, absolutely. Oh, but oh, also the, my the, dad. the show you did about your father, which is, uh, you know, quite a different piece to anything that you, suddenly it, the stand-up, I suppose, becomes a lot more personal. I think it could be said that in the old, I was talking with someone earlier about the uh, George Carlin line about the difference between a comedian and a comic. You know, a comedian walks on stage, or a comic walks on stage when they walk off, you know nothing more about them than when they walked on. Yeah. Whereas from the point of the father show onwards, and I, I would say that would be true, that's not a criticism, true of the earlier incarnation I saw of you you wouldn't necessarily go oh now I know a little bit about that guy yeah definitely whereas from that point onwards I think there's something with the clowning as well which which changes what the audience yeah. perceive you well, as well I started I did um, with Phil Burgers I did a week of clowning and then it was like a light bulb being turned on in a way just the, the stuff you do about listening to the audience so that you were giving them what they wanted and then that meant you could then give them what you wanted and they'd like it if you just spent 10-15 minutes on their terms almost listening to the laughter doing more of what they laugh at and less of what they don't and then that led to me going and doing a bit more clowning and then that was when my father died and I ended up doing the father show where I dressed up as him and played him as a sort of grotesque clown version of himself kind of uh, with a fat suit filled with balloons and a thick uh, Birkenhead accent for that. Uh, but it's, I think it all comes down to trying to create something that's actually happening in the room. And one way of doing that is uh, getting confessional and honest and revealing yourself so that there's a real um, relationship between you and the audience. And then clowning without that kind of confessional is similar, but you're, you're exposing yourself in a certain way. You're reacting to the audience as much as they're reacting to you. So you know it's all there and it's all real and it's actually going on. I always feel like when stand-ups lose a room, you know when people are chatting at the back and the audience slowly go quieter and quieter if you don't deal with it. Yeah. Because it's as if they're going, oh, he's not here with us. He doesn't realise what's going on in the room. He's not he's not here and it's all about the presence in some way whether you're a stand-up and it's very conversational and you're creating the feeling of just having a chat with the audience which I could never quite do or you're using more um, outlandish ways to get to the same result I guess it's interesting on going back to that thing about listening to the audience because I would also imagine that could be a misconstrued piece of advice because I think one of the dangers in, in, in stand-up is that you start to obey the audience too much and so you go, oh, that's not pleasing them enough or you walk on with presumption. So I suppose that's a different thing. Is Where do you start with that? So when you walk on, the first minute, are you starting with your set line, which is a generic line for all audiences? Are you? I don't mean you in particular, I mean, yeah. I'm talking generally. No, you're right. It is sort of... Um, I don't mean writing material you think will be mainstream and will make people happy. I think that's... You go down that route, you just end up with something awful, Never which also probably isn't... <laughs> Never. But you probably won't get it right as well. You, it probably won't be mainstream. It probably won't be successful. I often put myself in a situation like... 
people doing a Chaucer character now, which I do basically naked, of sort of jumping out of an airplane without the parachute quite sorted out. So you're already uncomfortable and you have to be listening to what they're going for and what they're not. And, and you're creating that sort of atmosphere between you. But really, it, it, it comes down to... It's easier with things which aren't straight gags because if you find saying a word in a particular way or doing a particular action gets the laugh then you can just feed it in more and uh, and do that for a while and then you find you're both in the same place and it becomes sort of deeper down and you're not doing it consciously anymore I, actually that's one of the most important things to me is not really doing it consciously getting yourself into a situation where you're like dressing up as your dead dad which put, makes you so uncomfortable as an idea and it's such a taboo to sort of break that you just have to run at it and see what happens and the audience are in the same boat and you're finding it at the same time and it becomes yeah a kind of conversation anyway so are you studious about comedy as well i mean do you do you like to to read about it whether it's books about commedia dell'arte or maxwell's autobiography or whatever it might be yeah 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 i just read um you know the comedians about the american yeah comedy over the last 70 years thought that was great very interesting who who is who are the authors? Are there any? I always think that Max Wall's autobiography, if you've never read it, The Fool on the Hill, oh, yeah. uh, is because he was such an interesting. Do you know much about Max Wall? No, no. He was. It's, it's always interesting these names to disappear. He, he was a very very popular uh, comedian. Then it kind of went wrong for him. I think when he got divorced, he went out of. That was in the days where if someone got divorced in show business, it, they may well end up in that kind of. Ah, oh, you're no longer allowed on our right. radio programs. And then he did a lot of work with Beckett as well. Right. And a, a great a, Professor Warlowski. He used to wear leggings, a little bow tie, uh, a bald wig with long hair at the back, right. and and he had a special walk as well. Very, which was very. You, you'll enjoy it, I think, actually. Okay, I'll, I'll um, find him. But working with Beckett as well. He's the. I remember him once saying, "He said, I don't know why people ever ask, are you happy? It's what a ridiculous thing." He said, "Happiness is is not a constant. One yeah. moment you're happy, and then seven minutes later you're miserable." But he yeah he, looking into his mind right. and the importance of him which was always will there be people to come and see me will I still be a comedian mm-hmm. that's all that mattered. it didn't matter about the money right and then Steve Martin's book oh, Gordon Stanley Up that. is fantastic beautiful book that, actually that was the first stand up book I read oh oh yeah I understand this the, the, the way he talks about tension I think is really useful in that the, um, if you don't give an audience the place they're meant to laugh then you hit into a hysteria because they don't know when they can release this laughter which is what you have to do when something's funny happened so it just happens in these random spurts and then you just get that beautiful rolling thing going around the whole crowd I always attention is very useful for comedy what do you you hear it a lot with jokes which the punchline isn't the funny thing about the joke sometimes it's just the rhythm change and people really like the idea of the joke they think well this is comic where can I ah here we go you've given me that beat so now I can do the um... I've got a routine at the moment with about a paradoxical pirate who he's got a he's got a peg leg because he's got bad depth perception because of his eye patch and so he walked into a shark he's got an eye patch because he got something in his eye and then he went to scratch it but his hook took it out um, he's got the hook because he got his peg leg stuck between two planks and he was trying to hoist the mainsail and then you just go around that so you see there's no point this pirate could have started but there's no laugh there so I just say piracy is a crime do not accept it big laugh it doesn't make sense but it suddenly releases it with something familiar to people so they go oh we like that idea there wasn't a place we could possibly laugh at that oh dear <laughs> everyone's clapping along to we'll meet again we've got to end it now <laughs> the, uh... is that what they're singing? yeah it's Catherine Jenkins it's one of those things where someone goes, why sing opera when I can sing pop tunes operatically? That's what the people want. What is and Catherine? when will people realise that the people are so often wrong? <laughs> All of them, every single one of is them. Is Catherine Jenkins here? Yeah, she's on the late stage. Oh. Yeah. They... Who, who, who are you reading at the moment? Um, what am I reading at the moment? Oh, I'm reading Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. Cool. Oh, what? <laughs> just just when it's been, everyone's gone. Well, that book was a waste of time. That's no, but that's not what I'm true. Doing. That's great. Yeah, no, I'm doing, well, in Edinburgh this year. I'm doing. I'm uh, getting a bunch of comedians to adapt that for the lo- first live stage performance. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, because yeah. I figure it's the um, it's the clo- everyone keeps getting everything wrong. Every political prediction is wrong, and then afterwards, the same people who've just got the prediction wrong yeah, say, yeah. "Oh, this is why that happened, by the way, and this is what's going to happen next." But they get it wrong again. So I thought that a bunch of clowns adapting a discredited uh, political philosophy book from 20 years ago is probably the closest we can get to something actually revealing. 
That's brilliant. Where's that on? Uh, the Pleasance on the 19th of August at and you're 11 doing p.m. Another show as well. I'm doing Look on My Work, She Mighty in Despair. Ah, oh, it's one of my favourite. Oh, Ozzy Mandari. Oh, it's not actually the whole title is Look on My Work, She Mighty in Despair, all in caps because the Fringe programme would not let me put it all in caps. Um, it took me a long time to. I even claimed that there was a central routine about the title actually being an acronym, but that didn't. Uh, they, they didn't. Uh, and I said, well, not letting me call it that is censorship now. You're making me cut a route. I had to, I hadn't got You're the route. so lucky, though, because, of course, Shelley is the big dollar now, isn't it? Ever since yeah, yeah. Jeremy Corbyn covered him at the end of his Glastonbury yeah. set. Yeah. You've now, uh, yeah. yeah. The lions have awoken from their chainy slumber. That's it, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. the words. Our final guest for this episode is a doctor of psychiatry and also the best-selling author of the novel The Trouble with Goats and Sheep. This is Joanna Cannon. Um, I've always been interested in narrative and people's narrative and ordinary people's narrative. Um, I think as a child I watched Alan Bennett's Talking Heads and it made me realise how fascinating ordinary people are and how much people can say with only a few words. And I think psychiatry is the last specialty where you use... A judgment, a clinical judgment. Yeah, I can't send somebody for an MRI scan or blood tests. I just sit and listen to their story, and that really appeals to me. What's your? Because I've, I've talked to quite a few therapists, uh, people like uh, Josh Cohen and Philippa Perry, and various. And what do you think is the thing that people know least about? Those who are fearful of it, because I think we're less fearful than we were. But I think people are still fearful of approaching psychiatry of yeah. in any way thinking oh is my mind right I must keep it all inside yeah I think it's, it's a difficult thing and I think as a psychiatrist as well I had somebody say to me the other day oh you're a doctor and I went yeah she says but you're only a psychiatrist so that stigma kind of carries on to the medical profession as well um, I think we're all afraid of mental health we're all fearful especially psychotic illness and the fact that you can wake up one day on a mental health ward and nobody expects to wake up on a mental health ward um, and I think there's so much negative imagery and negative language about mental health problems and as much as we're trying to eradicate that it takes a huge shift in public opinion for people to accept it in the same way they accept asthma or heart disease or cancer unfortunately so do you what can you give me a, you've probably been asked this so many times it's okay. but your story where school you left with was it uh, one GCSE or one O, one o level one sadly o I'm old enough yeah, between O levels well. yeah. <laughs> we must be the last year of that though I'm we sure. must we must of um, course but, and then you have 15 years of working in various jobs and then you decide yeah. that the time has come to... Yeah. to, to what, what was the spur for that? The spur for that was doing a first aid course because um, I, I left school early and I didn't know what I wanted to do and I think a lot of children then and now were asked to make huge decisions about what they want to do with their lives at a really, really early age and I hadn't got a clue so I went out and did all these different things. Um, I used to spray people with perfume in Debenhams. I was one of those women that you were, we would avoid as they're walking through the store and I shoveled dog poo and I delivered pizzas and, and all of those I things. I you weren't shoveling dog poo at the same time as you had the job, uh, the pizzas and the spraying and the, perfume because no, no, no. that I, could have a... I spread myself around. Yeah. Yes. I still deliver pizzas from time to time. Um, but I think I needed that life experience but I was always interested in education and learning and so I used to do things just for fun and I did a first aid course just for fun and it was taught by paramedics. And in the coffee break, um, I said, oh, I would love to have gone to medical school because I love psychiatry. I read about it just for fun, but I'm too old. And he said, oh, no, 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 you're not too old. People in their 30s go to medical school. And just from that small conversation, um, it just changed the direction of my whole life. Who were you reading in terms of uh, psychiatry? Who, who were the, the, the great authors um, I love reading Oliver Sacks. Um, he's just amazing. And the stories are incredible, and I love rare psychiatric conditions. They fascinate me. I like the sound of giraffes rather than horses and zebras rather than horses. Um, so that really interested me. And also um, books on mindfulness. At a very young age, I read a book by Anthony DeMello called Awareness, which is all about cognition and living in the moment. And it's effectively mindfulness, and that really changed my perspective. Um, but I think any book... Um, as I've said at the event today, any book is about psychiatry because all books are about people. So there's psychiatry in every story, if you look hard enough, I think. Why did you decide to go for fiction rather than perhaps a, a, a non-fiction look at psychiatry? What was uh... um, I think stories are a brilliant way to convey a point. Um, I think you have to feel very passionate about what you're writing with, with fiction, with any book, because it's a really hard slog. But I think it's a wonderful way 
to get a message across um, and something you really feel is important to say and, and the book I wrote um, is all about outsiders and people living on the periphery and how we judge people and what it was feel like to live with that kind of prejudice which is what I saw every day in psychiatry and so rather than write a book about psychiatry I thought why not write a story that shows that we're all a little bit different we all have these quirks of behaviour it's just that some of us are better at hiding it than others what do you think in terms of just for people generally that the, the quirk that if they knew like I was talking to one psychotherapist who was talking about the fact that most people have stage one and stage two suicidal thoughts mm. as opposed to I, I hope I'm getting that right as opposed to stage three which is to actually go and mm. start to purchase the things yeah. that may well yeah. um, and I, I thought well, that's a fascinating thing if we can get that out there but I wonder is there something in particular if, if more people knew about this particular what they see as, as you know a terrifying you know neuroses which is only theirs and must never be expressed mm. I think we need we do need to talk about it more I mean I think things like uh, Prince William talking about his mental health concerns when his mother died I think that is really important because somebody with a big platform like that talking about mental health problems is, is really valuable um, but I think we need to change the way we talk about mental health we need to stop using the words like I'm so depressed because Man United lost last night because that is a depression and I'm so OCD I have to do XYZ and uh, you know we've got to battle such big things in society that we, we use these words so lightly when there's with such heavy words um, we've got to change our whole mindset and you can't do that in five minutes but I would like to see mental health uh, taught on the national curriculum on the, on the syllabus I'd like to see children taught about mental health and how to deal with mental health problems I'd like to see healthcare professionals given more support um, I mean when I was a junior doctor I became very very stressed um, at the things that I saw um, and I didn't feel I've got anybody to talk to about it so I had to deal with it on my own and I think we need to eradicate those things because if the doctors aren't going for help then what hope does it give to the patients? Uh, so I think it's a, it's a huge thing to do, but I think we're on the way to shifting a change. But we need to keep at it, we really do. Thanks very much for listening and uh, a quick reminder if any of you are at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival that I will be up there doing two shows, one at 1.30pm at the Museum of Scotland which is kind of my idiot's attempted guide to art and then at 6.20 at the Stand Comedy Club where I'll be all kind of cross and then happy and then happy and cross and then eventually confused. Don't forget... If you want to hear the full-length version of these, then just become a Patreon supporter for as little as $1 an episode. And if you would like to become a Patreon of Book Shambles, you can do that by following the links and buttons on our on the podcast main site. That's cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles, and you'll get uh, extended episodes of the podcast as well as extra bonus episodes, including uh, some videos as well. We shot a short little shopping expedition on Jeff Towns's mobile book bus, Dylan's mobile book bus at Latitude. That was Robin and Jeff and myself uh, browsing around on the on the book bus there and picking up a few items. So that's available for Patreons now. Don't forget, if you'd like to check on the reading list for this particular episode or any episodes or indeed find out other guests that we've had on, the full list of both those things is at cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.